right. Good morning. Hey, that whole dinner group thing, really, it's biblical. Uh, Jesus ate with sinners, and you can too. <laughs> no, seriously, it's, it's, uh, it's just a great way to get to connect with people, and uh, I, uh, I would encourage you to do that. I think that at the end of that run of dinner groups, you'll know more people and feel more a part of this community than you do now. Now, however you feel a part of the community now, you'll feel even more a part of the community after that. So I would encourage you to have the courage to eat with somebody else. All right, if you have a Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Um, I've been sharing about this for a couple of weeks now that we're starting this chapter. And this chapter of this letter, uh, scholars believe it's probably the most... uh, Besides the book of Revelation talks of the future more than any other uh, section of scripture at one point um, in, in scripture. And in my opinion, has more to tell us about the future than the book of Revelation. Uh, the book of Revelation is about worship. Uh, Paul is telling us what to expect in life after life after death. And so as we get into this, we're actually going to do, we're not going to talk about that. (laughs) That starts next week. Uh, Last week, we finished up a series called Undivided, and it's where we looked at a chunk of the letter that Paul is addressing what happens when the Spirit is on us and works through us in community, okay? Not as individuals, but in community. And, and I want to say a couple things about that before we go forward because I think it's really important of what we talked about and the work of the Spirit and what the Spirit does in us and through us in community, what that looks like, that we don't just move on from that. That we don't just say, hey, that was great, and then we kind of slowly kind of go back into how we just operated before. My encouragement for you If you're anything like me, and I know I am, you you have been affected by this chunk of scripture in a way that's causing some some challenge in your life. And I want you to lean into that. I want us as a church to lean into that. And so today you're going to have an opportunity to pray with people um, who are going to be around the room towards the end of the day. And I would encourage you, if that's something that's on your heart, Um, to follow that prompting and that urging of the Spirit to be a part of that. Uh, But 1 Corinthians chapter 15, let me read the passage we're going to be looking at today. It goes like this. Now, brothers and sisters, and that's Paul's way of saying, let's switch gears. I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. 
Now, what we're looking at is, a, is probably one of the earliest, first and earliest creeds of the church. That Paul is actually bringing to light something they already know. And it starts with the gospel I preached, and he says, uh, uh, the, the Christ died for your sins according to the scriptures. Um, and, and this word gospel is in there, and there's just so much language, so much stuff to unpack. I think it's really important for us to dig in on a couple of things today. First of all, the word gospel is Greek for euangelion, which is actually 60 times Paul uses this word in his letters. 16 other times in the New Testament it's used, but Paul uses it 60 times because Paul is counteracting something contextually. For them and for many of the other churches of this time, the Roman Empire and the, and the, um, the, the preaching of the gospel of Caesar meant that Caesar was Lord. The gospel according to Caesar was Caesar will take care of you, Caesar's in charge, Caesar is Lord. And Paul is doing something very countercultural. He's actually uh, pr pronouncing a different kingdom. And we talked about this way back in January when we started this series. And so I just don't want us to forget that. That the gospel, that Jesus is Lord, was very countercultural. And the word gospel, what is this gospel that Paul is preaching? It's the real story, the actual real story of God's saving work through Jesus the Messiah. That is the gospel that Paul has preached. That is the gospel that he says that they have taken their stand with, okay? And, and, and what he says, he says, for what I received, I passed on to you, and that's very um, technical language for passing on a tradition. He actually uses this uh, in, in 1 Corinthians 11, something to pass on uh, to the people is like the passing on of a tradition and, and then he says, according to the scriptures. What does he mean by that? Does he mean the New Testament? Well, no, because that hadn't been really written yet. Did he mean the gospels? You know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Nope. Those hadn't been written yet. Did he mean his letters that he was writing? That would have been a little presumptuous, I think, at the time. What Paul is talking about is the Old Testament. And he's saying that we can see Jesus and the plan of God in the Old Testament. That according to the scriptures, there would have to be a Messiah, a Christ, who would die. Now, what's interesting is if you're new to the Bible, if you're new to church, what we're about to do is something a little um, weird. We're actually going to go back, and there's a passage in the Old Testament, one of many that Paul was referring to, because all of the Old Testament is actually building towards Christ, the Messiah. And so what we're going to do is we're going to go back, and it's going to feel weird at first, because there's going to be something that we're going to read about that's not going to feel normal to us. It's not going to feel like something we just know happens and exists. But we're going to jump into it. So if you have your Bibles, Genesis chapter 11. And now this is what Paul means when he talks about according to the scriptures. Now, would you agree that genealogies are the best parts of the Bible? 
They're just, I mean, once you see a genealogy, you're like, skip. But this is really important, okay? Genesis chapter 11, verses 27, it says this. This is the account of Terah's family line. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran became the father of Lot. While his father, Terah, was still alive, Haran died in Ur of the Chaldeans in the land of his birth. Abram and Nahor both married. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and Iscah. So far, you guys are feeling like this has been worth it, right? This has all been worth it to get up and to come. But here's the verse that's really important. Now, Sarai was childless because she was not able to conceive. Now, that line sets up a pretty significant narrative going forward from this point forward. Just that one line. Sarai was childless because she was not able to conceive. And that's all we know about Abram. He's married to a woman who can't conceive, and then God gives this pretty epic promise in the next chapter. Listen listen to this, chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, go from your people, and go from your father's household to the land I will show you. Let me just tell you how crazy of an idea that would be to hear. Leave your land, leave not only your land, but your people, and leave your father's household. Like, for a nomadic group of people, this had to be, that's just the most terrifying thing. He says, I will make you a great nation, into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. So the promise for Abraham was land, right? He's leaving his land, was to have land, was descendants, was offspring, and was blessing. Okay, and that God would be a part of all of this. Now, notice in chapter 11, it ends, he's childless. Chapter 12, it begins, your offspring will fill an entire nation. It just goes from this is my situation to this is the promise. And their childlessness and and the promise of children drives the story forward in the next 10 chapters of Genesis. And I would encourage you to go read it if you'd like. But that's what drives the story forward. God promises Abraham a child, and then he waits. And Abram waits and waits and waits. Finally, he begins to take matters into his own hands. And I'm not going to go into that story, but it's a pretty significant story. And, um, and has a child with uh, somebody else besides Sarai. And, and then in chapter 14... Um, he has, there's, he's a, there's a war, he's a, a conflict he's involved in, and there's a king that offers him the spoils of that war, and he turns down the spoils of that war, okay, so that the, he's not indebted to this king any longer. And, and, and with all that in mind, um, it, it sh- shows up now, we're in Genesis chapter 15, and, and Genesis chapter 15 is one of the most important chapters in all of Scripture, And I would go as far as to say that the whole Bible can be understood in the context of this chapter. 
and it's going to be the weirdest thing you've ever read. Okay? And so this is where God and Abraham come together and make a covenant. And when Paul says, according to the scriptures, this is what is in Paul's mind. Paul is just drenched in Old Testament scripture. And so this is what's in his mind. It's foundational to what Paul is about to tell the Corinthians. Listen to this. Chapter 15, verse 1, it says, After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram. So after uh, Abram tries to, uh, to jumpstart the family thing, and after Abram has this conflict that he's in, um, it says, After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. It says, Do not be afraid, afraid Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. Now, this is interesting part because this is where Abram has what the, the, the Jewish people call chutzpah, okay? Where he's just a little bold, all right? And it says, but Abram said, sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, you have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Uh, and so the servant in his household um, bore him a child. And, and that's that conversation that we, we didn't get into. God says, I mean, listen, God, this is hilarious. God says, Abram, um, I'm your reward. And Abram's like, yeah, that's great. But you promised me kids. And you haven't delivered. And God doesn't kill him right there. It's pretty amazing. And um, the word of the Lord came to him. It says, this man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars. If indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord and, it, and he credited it to Credit it, it to him as righteousness. So there's a whole truckload of meaning in this, and we're not going to get into because there's much more to get to. He says, he also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur, of the Chaldeans, to give you this land, to take possession of it. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer. <laughs> So that just strikes me as odd, right? Um, how will I know? Bring me a cow. Bring me a heifer, a goat and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. So you might be asking, what does this have to do with anything? What is going on here? What is about to happen is that God is inaugurating a covenant with Abram in language and in, in, in mental pictures that, that Abram understands. See, Abram is a Chaldean. And if you are a Chaldean and you are going to make a covenant, you are going to make a, a pact or a contract with somebody, there is certain formalities that everybody just knows about. They didn't have notary republics. They didn't have insurance. They didn't have any legal courts or anything like that. There was no lawyers. There was no written legal forms. What you did was you entered into a covenant with someone if you wanted to have an agreement with them. Okay? So Abram knows what's going on. God doesn't have to explain. Brought all of these to him. 
cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Well, that birds had it going for him. Um, so really, he takes these large animals, and he doesn't cut them in half. I know this is disgusting to think about on a Sunday morning. He doesn't cut them in half like this. He cuts them in half like this. It's disgusting. And I don't know if you've hunted, but, I mean, that's a lot of work to cut an animal in half this way. And the halves were laid out opposite, and, and there's a trench in between them, and the blood from that animal would go into this trench and roll down this trench. Absolutely disgusting. And then the birds, they didn't get cut in half. Everybody with me? This is fun, huh? I was going to get pictures, but I decided not to. Everybody's cool with that? Or like a felt board. You guys remember growing up? Growing up in church and they had felt boards? That would have been sweet. So Abram brought all these. He did all this stuff. And it says in verse 12, as the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep. And it says, a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, know for certain that for, hunt, for 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own. What is he talking about? Egypt, right? This is God telling Abram, this is going to happen. And remember, the conversation was, how will I know my descendants will get this land? And then it goes on, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there in Egypt. I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they, will, afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. And it says in verse 17, when the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot and a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. Okay, what is going on? This is what um, scholars call a blood covenant. It is the biggest and highest and most intense covenant you could make between another person. Meaning... This was the, the daddy of them all covenants. This was an agreement that basically said this. There's two parties involved. There's a greater party and a lesser party. In a covenant, the greater party would always dictate the terms to the lesser party. And then if the lesser party agreed, they would both proceed into the ceremony. And the ceremony, Abraham, Abraham knows what's about to happen. He, he knows this because he's seen covenants done before. And he's cut these animals and he's arranged everything. And then it said a thick and terrible darkness came over him. And we'll talk about that, what that means in a second. But Abram knows what's happening. And he begins the process. This is a Chaldean covenant ceremony. And by passing through the blood between the animals' bodies, like the first party walks through, then the second party walks through. Um, and, and what would happen is by walking through, you would get blood on the hem of your robe, okay, as you walked through. And what that symbolized was if the greater party walks through first, and, it's, and basically that symbolizes if... I or my descendants do not keep our word, 
and don't keep our end of the covenant, you can do to me what we have done to these animals. That's a blood covenant. That's a pretty big deal, right? And there would be witnesses. Now, the lesser party would also walk through the blood. Both parties would walk through, and the lesser party would say the same thing. If I do not live up to the terms of the covenant on my end, may me or my descendants, may we be like the animals in this covenant ceremony. See what's going on here. This is a big deal. Abram knew what was happening. And if you think, oh, this isn't really, does this really happen? Fast forward to Jeremiah chapter 34. Listen to this. See if you pick up on any of this language. This is Jeremiah speaking for the Lord. It says, those who have violated my covenant and have not fulfilled the terms of the covenant they have made before me, I will treat like the calf they cut in two and walked between its pieces. The leaders of Judah and Jerusalem, the court officials, the priests, and all the people of the land who walked between the pieces of the calf, I will deliver into the hands of their enemies who want to kill them. Their dead bodies will become food for the birds and the wild animals. Jeremiah is hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years later. This is something you knew of. Now, here's the idea. Abram and Sarah are childless. God promises them children, but does not fulfill that promise immediately. Abram asks God for assurance. God takes him outside and says, look at the stars, and you will get this land. Uh, but just so you know, your descendants, 400 years and slavery, all that kind of stuff. And he says, let's make a blood covenant. And Abram does all the work, and the blood pools in the middle. And as the sun is setting, on, in verse 12, Abram falls into a deep sleep. And the Hebrew word here is actually a visionary sleep, um, something where he's experiencing something from God. And it says, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. It's is a Hebrew way of saying he was peeing his pants. He was terrified. The intensity of the moment. He's walking into a blood covenant with God Almighty. This is intense. And he was entering this blood covenant, and, and what was Abraham's part of the covenant? See, this covenant actually uh, part kind of goes over a couple chapters. If you fast forward to um, verse uh, 1 of chapter 17, it goes like this. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Then I will make my covenant between me and you and, we will, you will, and will increase your numbers. And so uh, Jewish scholars believe that this is all part of this covenant language. That when 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 God approaches Abram, Abram's part of the deal is to walk before God blameless, blamelessly, blamelessly, you and your descendants. So why was Abram so terrified? Because if he steps in the blood, he's saying, if me or my descendants do not keep our end of the deal, you can do this to us. If we don't walk blamelessly before you, you can do this to us. 
Now, verse 17 is one of the most important scriptures in one of the most important verses in all of scripture. Look, look at this. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. Now, that doesn't sound like much to us. It sounds a little weird, actually. But remember, the greater party goes through first, and then the lesser party goes through second. The greater party is symbolized here as God as a smoking fire pot. What is a fire pot? Well, a fire pot, for those of us who have just gas-forced air heat, is the way you would transfer the coals from the night before, the fire the night before, to help you start the coals for the next day. So everybody had a fire pot. You would keep coals in it, okay, away from the wind, but it still had air to keep the coals going, and then you would reuse those the next day. Does that make sense? That's a smoking fire pot. And then a flaming torch. Two different things go between the pieces. Now, this is really interesting. There's a smoking pot, which is the greater party, and, and, and smoke is always symbolic in Scripture of God's presence all throughout the Old Testament. The lesser party goes next, right? And you would think that would be Abram who would trek through the blood next. But in Abram's place is a flaming torch. And a flaming torch, fire, is never used to symbolize humanity. It's always used to symbolize God. Always in Scripture. So you have the smoke and the fire. I mean, if you look in the Old Testament, you've got the people of Israel are, are, are coming out of Exodus, and they are led by a pillar of fire at night and a cloud by day or smoke. That, that God's smoke, the smoke would fill the temple, and that was the presence of God, all those kinds of things. So if you've lost me to up to this point, okay, God goes through first and says, if I do not keep my end of the bargain, land, descendants, blessing, Abraham, you can do this to me. As if, but you know what I mean? Like, you can do this to me. Then God goes through again on behalf of Abraham and says, if you and your descendants do not keep up your end of the covenant, which is to walk with me blamelessly, then you can do this to me. You tracking me? God walked through God walks through the first time to live up to his end of the covenant, and then he walks through a second time to pay the price for not living up to their end of the covenant. Now, from this point on, you have Abram, who has Isaac, and there's just a, the family tree begins. Then the people are, you know, go to Egypt for famine relief and then end up enslaved in Egypt. And then they get uh, rescued out of Egypt in the clutches of Pharaoh. They're at the foot of a mountain. There's smoke and fire that is guiding and leading the people. It is God's presence. And then God, in that moment, God tells them how to be a people, okay, 
that connect with him, that worship him, that follow him. And one of the ways they would do that is that 9 a.m. and at 3 p.m. every day, there would be a sacrifice where the people would offer up a sacrifice to God. They would go to this place, the priest would sprinkle blood on the altar, and they would remember that God would pay for their sin. That is the story. When Paul says, according to the scriptures, Paul is pointing towards Jesus. Because on a particular Friday, it was Passover. And on this particular Friday, hundreds of thousands of pilgrims of the Jewish people, of the descendants of Abraham, are filling the streets. And at 9 a.m. in the morning, three criminals are crucified outside the city gates. The one in the middle at 3 p.m. looked dead. Now, the Romans were really good at crucifying people. They could make a crucifixion last for three days. They knew how to really keep someone just alive in order to suffer a lot. And on that Friday, on that hill, the person in the middle at 3 p.m. shouts, according to John's gospel, it is finished. Or as you and I know, it's a word called tetelestai, which actually is a word that, that is used in covenant language to talk about the completion of a covenant agreement. That that's the word that was uttered by the criminal in the middle. And the word was a completion word, like I said, and, and, and what was finished, what did, what, what did this person just yell out, why did, they, why did they say it is finished? Because their suffering was about to be over? No, it was the promise of a covenant being fulfilled. It was the announcement that that covenant made with Abraham, and the blood of Christ was pooling on the ground, that the covenant had been completed. So when Paul says that Christ died according to the scriptures, Paul isn't talking about Luke's version of the crucifixion. Paul is talking about all of the hopes and the dreams and the beliefs and the moving through the generations of the people of Israel all throughout history. And then Paul writes in Romans chapter 3, verse 21, he says, But now apart from the law of righteousness of God has been made known to which the law of the prophets, which the law and the prophets is basically Paul saying the Old Testament scriptures, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement, through the shedding of his blood. Remember, blood was required in the setting of the covenant, right? To be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness. Now, older versions of scripture actually say to satisfy his sense of justice. We'll get into that. Because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that to be just, and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Now, there's a whole mouthful right there. 
What's, what Paul is saying is, why did, why did God send Jesus? Well, I think there's a bunch of reasons. But one of them is to satisfy the justice of God. One of them is to satisfy the justice. Now, what does the justice of God demand? Well, according to the story that Abraham's a part of, the payment of the transgressions of Abraham's descendants be made in blood. Right? The blood covenant. Walk with me blamelessly. So God sent Jesus forward to make that happen. I was at a conference a few years back, and the, the speaker was talking, and he, he asked everybody this question. It's a pastor's conference, so there's all these really smart and whatever. And um, <laughs> all those are just professional Christians, right? And uh, he asked a question. He says, when you confess your sins, do you appeal to God's mercy or do you... And, and, or do you appeal to God's sense of justice? So he asks this question, and he's like, I want to see a show of hands. Well, when he says, how many of you appeal to God's sense of mercy? I mean, the room just, boom, arms up in the air. He's like, how about who appeals to God's sense of justice? Nobody put their hand up. We love mercy. That word justice is tricky, right? We want justice for other people. We're like, that's unjust. Somebody needs to pay for that, right? But then when we think about ourselves, that's really difficult. And what was interesting is the speaker was like, listen, the justice of God is what it's work in the, it, what's at work in the sacrifice of atonement, atonement. Meaning, let's suppose, this is a really bad analogy, but you're going to hang with it. Because you have to. So let's suppose that I have been known to forget my wallet. Okay? Let's just suppose. And suppose that um, I also like to go to a local coffee shop called Two Rivers Coffee. And, and, and let's just suppose that I show up one day and I order a coffee and a scone. And the owner, Eric, is across from the counter. And I'm like... I'm doing the whole, you know what I mean? Oh, I forgot my wallet. And Eric is a merciful guy. Don't try this, by the way. Don't test his mercy. But Eric's a merciful guy, and he's like, hey, listen, man, this one's on me today. It's okay. I'm like, man, thank you, Eric. Thank you. And I go, and I enjoy my, my scone and my coffee. And the next day, I show up, and I order the same thing. I'm so excited because it's something you can get addicted to. And, and then Eric's there, and I'm like, oh, and wallet thing. I really got to maybe get one of those chains or something. And he's like, listen, uh, you can just pay for it tomorrow. I'm like, oh, that's a great idea. Let's pay for it tomorrow. The next day shows up. And I forget my wallet again. Not only is he thinking, do I need to help you with certain life skills? Like, do you have your wallet in the same place, whatever? But he's, at this point, I'm like, oh, man, my wallet. What is he thinking? No. Like, we're done. with <laughs> The wallet thing is becoming a real burden on me. And um, how about you just go home and get it? You live pretty close, right? So that's scenario number one. Scenario number two is um, Angela understands that I'm an idiot and I keep leaving my wallet at home. 
So she buys a Two Rivers gift card, puts $100 on it, and doesn't give it to me, but gives it to Eric. <laughs> so then the next time I walk in and I say, oh, man, I'd love a coffee and a scone, and I forgot my wallet, Eric goes, oh, that's fine. Do you want a burrito, too? Well, of course, that sounds great, right? And, so, and so, so here we are. We have these two scenarios, right? I keep leaving my wallet. Eric's it's burdened by it. And then, and then the second scenario is, no, there's something else at work here. Now, this is, this is what I'm getting at. In the first scenario, I'm appealing to Eric's sense of mercy. And I'm indebted to him, but his mercy ran out. It's just going to run out over time. On the second scenario, I'm appealing to Eric's sense of justice. Why? Because it would have been unjust of Eric to charge me when the price had already been paid. Does that make sense? It's not a perfect analogy. Don't go home and diagram it. What I'm telling you is that, that this is a, precisely what Genesis is saying and Paul is affirming. That when you go before God for the 400th time confessing the same stubborn sin in your life, you don't have to go with blood on the hem of your robe in terrible and dreadful fear, hoping that God's mercy hasn't run out on the 401st time. No, you go to God Boldly, in robes, white robes, appealing to God's sense of justice. Why? Because it would be unjust for God not to forgive you because he has already provided that which has made atonement. Do you see what I'm saying? Paul is saying, according to the scriptures, Christ died for us. And what happens is, is that far too many of us are cowering before God as if we had anything to do with any of this in the beginning. And we show up and we try to think, oh, I've got to change my life and I've got to fix this and I've got to fix that. No, this is the God who demands and provides what he demands. See how beautiful that is? And it's the difference between anything else you've ever come to believe in your life. The gospel of King Jesus is, is, is more beautiful than every other religion and philosophy in the history of the planet because God demands and God pays. God demands and God, God walks through twice for you, for me. In other words, Abram, when you fall short... I will cover your shortfall, and we will pay for it in my blood. That's Genesis. That's been God's plan all along. And I want to make this point. It's not just a story that is foreshadowing Jesus. Okay, because it is. But it's not just that. Okay? It's, it's who God has always been. God, there wasn't the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. This is who God has always been. He's always been a God pursuing, loving, laying down for his people. It's me, it, this has been his message from the beginning. I am God. I love you. I am for you. I will fight for you in spite 
of you. Just trust me. And the cross is precisely the moment when God fulfills the covenant. The demands of the covenant and the price of the covenant. 1 John 1.8, it says this, if we claim to be without sin, we're just lying to ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. Listen to that word, just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. God pays. God paid. God walked through twice. Now, the freedom of that announcement is something that we lose. We lose that freedom. We tell ourselves that can't be true. We tell ourselves, I have to fix myself. Uh, we tell ourselves, I have to do this and show up more, and, and I have to do all these things. But you are invited to follow this Jesus, and by following this Jesus and believing this Jesus, you are invited to be transformed slowly in your life to become more like Jesus. That is the invitation. The invitation isn't, hey, you're good, do whatever you want. The beauty of the invitation is, you're good. Now live out of that. And the best experience is, I, whenever I talk to somebody who's been a server in a restaurant. Anybody ever been a server in a restaurant? Waiter, waitress? Yeah. Have you ever had somebody pay for the meal of the person at the, your table? Meaning they saw, a friend saw them or whatever from across or whatever, or they, they knew it was their birthday and they called ahead and they paid for the meal. Like for servers, whenever I talk to servers, I'm like, hey, tell me a story of when you got to tell somebody that their meal was paid for. And they're like, oh man, it was the greatest thing ever, right? Like I got to walk up there and just tell them, hey, no, it's all taken care of. Do you know that's our job? That's what we get to be we get to announce to people the joy and the freedom of telling people, hey, it's been paid for. Let me just tell you about this God I love and this God who loves me. That he demanded a certain thing from me, I couldn't do it, and he provided what I couldn't do. Like, this is like... For us to be a people that in great joy and great freedom get to live our lives in a way that has such joy and such freedom and such excitement to it. Why? Because God walked through twice. Because God walked through twice. Now, when we say... And when we hear Christ died according to the scriptures, as Paul has shared with the Corinthians, this is what he is saying. That at the center of scripture is a God who so loved the world that his relentless pursuit for his creation is at work all throughout the pages of scripture. That God walked through twice, that he paid for what he demanded. And if you are here and you walk around with a thick and heavy, dreadful darkness in your life, there is great news for you. 
not change your situation news, but better than that. There is great news for you that you can say yes to this Jesus, you can say yes to this atonement, that you can, that the real, right now in your life, maybe as you're sitting here today, you're just feeling like for the first time there's something happening in you regarding this announcement that people have heard for thousands of years. And what you are experiencing is the real dynamic spirit of God drawing you to Jesus pulling you to Jesus. See, Christianity isn't about a set of ideas. Christianity isn't a path of spirituality. It's not a rule of life. And it, I mean, all those things, I mean, it gives energy to all those things, but at its heart, it's something way bigger. It is good news. It is the gospel. It is the event that has happened, an event that has happened in the world and because of this event, because of this event, the world can never be the same again. And because of this event, those who believe it, and those who trust it, and those who change their allegiance to a different king and live by it, they will never be the same again either. And so there's no better way for us to respond to this is Paul is setting up, Paul is setting up what is about uh, to happen in this next chapter is Paul is setting up what the future looks like because of this event. And there's no way to, better way for us to celebrate this than to come to the table and to worship. And so let me pray and then we'll, we'll gather around the table. God, thank you for the opportunity for us to, to really dive in and see what Paul is saying, that according to the scriptures, according to these writings from years and years and years, thousands of years ahead, that the plan has always been for you to walk through twice. Jesus wasn't plan B. You knew who we were. And it says in scripture that while we were yet sinners, while we were still in our own ways, that Christ walked through for us. So God, we come to the table as people that don't deserve. We have no ability to walk through that blood covenant. We have no ability, we have absolutely no capacity to be blameless. And you knew that. And you loved us and you wanted to have a relationship with us and you knew that and so you decided to take care of that for us. That we might have a relationship with you. That you would restore us. That you would bring us back to our former owner, place, and condition. And God, so we come to the table. Not heavy hearted, but in celebration. 
knowing that there is no other way for us to experience a relationship with you. And so God, this morning, if there's anybody in this room that is just wrestling this out right now, you can sense your active, real, and dynamic spirit moving, drawing them to this. God, I pray that today would be that day where they say yes to your son, Jesus, that they would change their allegiance from themselves or from this, the way this world operates into a whole different kingdom. A kingdom of forgiveness, a kingdom of purpose, a kingdom of love and, and acceptance and joy, knowing that our sins are forgiven. And a kingdom that is at work, renewing everything the way you want it to be. And so, God, we come to the table and we celebrate your body broken for us. And then on that Passover, the night before Passover, you turned to your disciples and you broke the bread. And you said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then you passed the wine, symbolic at the meal of Passover. And you passed a fourth cup. And you raised it up and you said, this is my blood. In the new covenant, the old one goes away tomorrow. And the new one is here. And you said, this is my blood. And you said, drink this anytime you remember. And so, God, we come to the table in expectation that we will meet you here. That some of us, for the first time in our lives, will say yes to your, your grace and your forgiveness. And for other of, others of us, we'll, we'll be reminded of what you've done for us to continue us on mission this morning. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Come to the table whenever you're ready.